I'm sitting down here with Mika Dahan. Fortunate enough to have him in here in the studio. So, Mika, why don't you tell me a little bit about about yourself, the kind of work that you do or doing and where you're at right now? I started out as a technician on set. So I was camera assistant, and then I was a lighting technician. I was in the union for a bit. I was lucky enough to start when film was still being used. I think I was lucky enough to learn the craft when there was uh, uh, more discipline and forethought put into uh, into projects, and also fortunate enough to be uh, to be working now in an era where you can just create things and take more risks because what you see is what you get. The projects that I do now, doing docudramas, I seem to be doing a lot of on the road doc stuff, some music videos, some commercials. Used to do a lot more of both, and a lot of web stuff now. Yeah, it seems like everything's kind of going that direction. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in fact, the, the lines are blurred. I don't. I could be working on something and find out that it got upgraded to an actual TV slot. You one day you're like, oh yeah, it's a web thing, so we, don't, we only have so much to spend. And the next thing you know, you're seeing your your project on like a TV somewhere. Saying, what happened to this like web budget? Yeah, that's always something to think about when getting hired. Is you want to make it as good as you can and. It might go further. I don't know how to reconcile that because you can't go back and ask for more money. They, the producers recognize that when they hire someone with a particular skill set, the stuff will be upgradable. And it's also tough for the decisions that you make. If it's for web, then you might not be as worried, for instance, how you fill the frame, if it's going to be for a big screen or for TV or for web. There are differences in how you frame things, right? Even a close-up, what's a close-up? How, how, how close do you get, you know? If you fill the frame with someone's face uh, in a way that works well for web, it's kind of overwhelming on a big screen. So yeah. It's like, remember when they would tell us to shoot for widescreen, but four by three safe? It's like, well, the composition's a little different. Some of the, um, the artists that you worked for when you were first doing, because you kind of really cut your teeth in music videos. I ended up shooting and directing. Okay, so there was, there's a band called Our, they're called Our Lady Peace, and they needed to make a video, and they didn't want a director on it. and So they hired me as the shooter, and they were going to direct it. I'm going to say that in quotes, because even if you don't think you need a director, you need a director. By default, I ended up directing. I had to invent a piece of uh, machinery for it, because I was keen on uh, getting a circular dolly shot around the band, but I, I wanted to film them in slow motion. And so how do you get a good dolly move whilst still like, having a really slow motion shot? At the time, I shot with an Action Master 500 Photosonics camera that Greg Akouris so he used to buy all these lenses and so everything was switching (laughs) over from film to video and he um he had the 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 good sense to contact hospitals and places that invested in equipment but rarely used it so he bought these cameras from nasa so the camera that i got from him could have been on clamp to a rocket i mean could have had one of the apollo shots that we saw that we they were all familiar with could have been shot by this camera I don't know but anyway so I got this Action Master 500 I was going to shoot at 24 frames a second 480 would be 20 times slower right and I was on 16 yeah yeah how do you get a perceptible dolly shot when you're shooting that slow motion you'd have to move the dolly 20 times as fast for it to then look the way you saw it on the day 
that's impossible for a circular shot with a dolly because you just fly off. Um, the centrifugal force would just push you off and you'd never be able to spin fast enough. So then I had to, you know, how do you, how do, you do it? And one idea was to drive by the band back and forth and then just whip pan as I drive by so that I could be perceptible. And of course, that was that, that's not realistic. So what I did is I just created this thing. It's basically like a wine glass with a stem and a base, let's say. Right? So you've got this and, and then a ring of bearings, a lazy Susan that goes around the stem and then an arm for the camera. And then the other side of the arm would be for a weight so that it's completely separate from the pedestal continue the wine glass analogy, people will be standing in the, in the glass. It's basically a platform that you can stand on that has a, an arm that spins around it freely. Uh, you counterweight it perfectly so that it has no resistance. And at the time, I, the action masters used uh, AC. So I had to run a line of AC up the stem, used a couple of bungee cords. They were along the arm, so the wire went through them. And basically, it meant that I could get four winds of the cable around the stem before I had to stop the thing. And I'd whip it around and turn the camera on remotely by plugging it in as it's spinning. So uh, this was all like a low angle shot then, so you wouldn't see the arms? Exactly, so the arm is kind of below, the platform yeah. becomes ground level and we look straight up and just keep the platform right at the bottom of frame. And so that was the prototype that I built. And the weight was a sandbag and a milk crate and the arm, <laughs> the hole for the stem was, you know, it was a two by eight that I cut a hole out of and you know it was, was very be, this would only need to be below the platform the guys are standing on to be taking their feet out with it spinning around that's right that's <laughs> right and so for the prototype I had a guy that lived next door to me I was living in a warehouse space at the time and he could do a, a roundhouse and take off and land in the same spot a really nice roundhouse kick yeah I spun the arm around as quickly as I could and he did his kick and we landed 180 degrees so, so from when he took off by the time he landed his kick, we were clear on the other side of him, 180 yeah. degrees. And that looked amazing. And at the time, it was after the Matrix came out and everybody was into these kind of shots. And it was sort of like a Matrix shot because he was so slow motion. And yet our move was so rapid uh, relative to him that you would just never see that combination. And that's what happens with an audience is they don't know technically what you did, but they know something that they've never seen before. So that, that was the prototype, and then I had an effects company manufacture a bigger one to hold the entire band, and instead of a wire that's sort of bent around, they used brushes to transmit the, the power to the camera and all this stuff. And so for the video, we whipped around, uh, we had a 15-foot arm uh, with a counterweight that was hidden underneath. And so that means it's a 30-foot dolly around the band. Uh, we were spinning around at 30 RPM. So that meant a 30-foot dolly around the band every two seconds. So wow. it's really fast. Yeah, yeah, super fast, yeah. Yeah, and that'll so that will break a limb if you got in the way. Was this supposed to be synced to something as well? So the band wasn't playing. Uh, the video was kind of an anti-video. They were just sitting there in the rain, sad. The whole idea <laughs> was the song was written for a girl that was dying and speaking with Rain Maida, the lead singer, we were talking about what's the emotion and eventually we got to, you're sitting in the rain and you don't even have the energy to get up and, and help yourself, you know, cover up. Because this girl was dying and she was really happy that he came to see her. It was a, a, a Children's Wish Foundation kind of thing. And he was by her side and she was so excited that he was there. But all he could think is, I'm just a singer. Like, I can't do anything for you. 
and you're all happy and I'm glad to be here and cheer you up, but you're going to die. Like it, it broke his heart. And so the video was supposed to be a visual sort of representation of that emotion. They just sat there in the rain the whole time. We whipped around. Oh, and then the song was divided into uh, essentially four sections. Uh, you had three verses and a chorus. So four band members in the lyrics, he says, I don't, I don't know what's happening. I, I, you know, I can, there's a thief in your head. The thief is the, the tumor. You know, he says, I don't know what's happening and I can't pretend, but I can be your dot, dot, dot. Meaning I can be your whatever you want me to be, but I have no answer for you. So this kind of, th that statement was the essence of the frustrated feeling. So I had each band member sing that part. They sang nothing else except that part. And for that part, we rolled at 48 frames a second and then had them sing it twice speed. And so there was just a sense of slow motion and nobody can really tell when they look at it, even though the water droplets are not frozen in the air, just like the other footage. People don't even realize. And this, the video is structured very much like a, like a video, but an anti-video. So the whole idea is to, we're getting into the moment. So it starts off regular speed and you hear the sound of rain. And then some abstract kind of environmental shots showing the droplets landing on the rooftop and stuff. And then the sound of the rain fades away as the motion slows down. We did a lot of post ramping. So you get a sense of, ah, here we are, we're at a space. This is what it looks like. There's rain. And now we're going to go into the moment. And as we slow down into the moment, we introduce the band members. And usually with every music video that I've seen for, for a while, you managed to get onto the lead singer right in time for the first lyric. That's kind of the structure. So we did that. But of course, we get to the lead singer and he inhales like he's about to sing. And then he exhales and kind of looks away from us. So it's like, oh, OK, we're not going to give you what you think. Cool. But it, but we'll still have the structure that you're used to kind of thing. So then it goes through all the chapters. Each band sings. And then finally, the lead singer sings the part that he was about to in the beginning, but as a, as the wrap-up sort of final chorus. Do you know what year this would have been around when you were making this one? 98, maybe. Before anybody was shooting anything really digitally, like the 5D hit. And it was before the 5D, All that stuff yeah. kind of came in. So yeah. the budgets on something like this, were they a bit healthier at that time? Oh, yeah. I think the budget was... 65,000 or 70,000 Canadian. But in those days, I mean, you, you'd have to count on out of that budget, maybe about 20,000 of it was for film stock, transfer, tape stock and post and yep. all that kind of stuff. There were a lot of hard costs that you couldn't avoid. Like now we could we could do that again, probably for 40 grand. Yeah, we could. I could make that same video for about 40 grand now, maybe 45. Yeah. So that was Thief, and then immediately uh, the same management company loved that video, and they were also handling a band called Finger Eleven, and they hired me to do that video. It was uh, for a song called Drag You Down. For that one, I also invented something. The singers, he loses his shit, and that's the whole idea. Someone has to pull me under before I try to drag you down. That's the lyric. So he's calling out to someone, control me here, do something so that I don't show my worst side to you, I guess. And so the idea was that he he's jamming with the band and it's all about they're in the circle and they're just rehearsing before they go out and hit the road one more time. But then he starts to address the camera. At some point in the video, he looks right at the lens and he's screaming out for someone out there to... Again, structurally, there's the sort of build-up, it goes abstract and then becomes more, not literal, but it's about the jam at that point. It's about their superlative musicianship you know where like these guys are awesome so each person like 
the drummer drops a drumstick and picks it up right on cue. He's that, he's that good, you know, and the guitar player breaks a string and switches guitars before he, you know, before the next note. And it's kind of about that fluidity of their professionalism. And then finally the lead singer grabs the letterbox. It was at a time, it was a magic time where we can, you're watching it in four by three and you have to impose the letterbox. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, the trick there, of course, was to put the letterbox and then do one scan line at 50%. So it looked like you really transferred a movie instead of imposed it digitally because you always get that crisp line with the aliasing. So by going one, just one pixel, one line at 50% makes it look like you transferred a movie. So now we have people watching at home on a four by three camera and we have a letterbox. And the whole idea is let's penetrate through it. Sort of a 3D effect where he grabs the letterbox and his hands wrap around the top and bottom and he shakes it and then throws a camera down on the ground. And of course, then the film flies out of the projector. A little bit David Fincher. And if you watch it, there is a progression to it as well. There are f actually four times with a letterbox where it's penetrated. So if you get a chance to watch it back, you'll see the first one is a flare. It's just a regular flare, just like anything else that you see in a video. But, oh, the flare just went over the letterbox. Most people don't really even notice that. It's the first one. Then we dolly into the drummer and the stem from the cymbal penetrates the letterbox and just sits there for a while. Then James, the guitar player, drops a pick. And this is the sort of most overt one. He actually grabs, there's another pick inside the letterbox. So that's the, the thing that I created was a letterbox cage to put the IMO in it. We were shooting 35. There's an IMO there. And we actually had the bars that can slide up and down and physically be there in the shot as a foreground element. As we put them, lined them up exactly with 185. And uh, then we could stick a pick to the inside of one. We could shake the camera around. We could do all that. So James takes the pick taped to the letterbox. Basically, he reaches right in. And then the final one is uh, Scott, lead singer, loses his shit and grabs the letterbox and starts to shake it and stuff. The IMO, you chose that one because that's typically like a crash camera. Why did you choose that for that project? Uh, well, it, that was only for the stuff that was in the cage. So otherwise we shot on, uh, was it a was it a three? Didn't matter for sound. It, might, it was probably an Airy three. And then the IMO for the, for the crash cam so that we can stick it inside a cage and then two grips could hold it while he shakes the camera yeah, right. and we can then throw it down to the ground and stuff. Yeah, Both those videos did really well for me and all of a sudden I went from being a DP to being an in-demand uh, music video director, uh, director DP. Rode that for a little bit, never really took it seriously enough to be honest. I always consider myself the shooter who's just directing a little bit on the side. Cut to many years later, I'm still directing every once in a while, uh, but mostly shooting. And we've worked on a couple projects together and everything you do, you're always trying to innovate something different. You've always got something that's your own, your own style, your own something new. Yeah, something. So, okay, here's a, here's a big switch that happened for me. So when I was starting out, when I was in high school, I, was, I started out making films, much like other DPs that I've heard telling their story. It was almost a way to circumvent sort of beat the system a little bit you know everybody else had to do essays and I didn't want to do essays they were really boring for me but I wanted to make films so I convinced my teachers to let me make uh, films instead and uh, so I was able to, you know when you make a film so much other work that has to go into it that you really only need to do maybe a half the amount of research or quarter the amount of research you'd have to do for for an essay and then the rest is spent on delivering it to the audience. Uh, that suited me a lot more. So sort of beating the system. One of the films that I handed in was about endangered animals. It was for world issues. And I just did a photo montage of some endangered animals with uh, voiceover talking about them and some music and stuff. 
and I was trying to film this encyclopedia and trying to do some movement on it. So I tried to pan. This is at a time where you couldn't just take a picture, put it into the computer, and you know, you had to actually take a video camera and film this picture. So I was able to do zoom ins and zoom outs, but I couldn't pan because when I would pan, the way the focus goes from the front element, it's supposed to be from the focal plane, but as you pan, if the front element's sitting further out, you're going to lose your focal point as you pan. You're also going to get keystoning as you pan. So it was difficult and I couldn't figure it out. And at the time I was working at the Canadian Center for Advanced Film Studies. It was my co-op placement. So I asked one of the guys there, I was like, how do you, you know, how would you do this? And he looked at me and he just kind of looked at me. The camera was pointing down at the encyclopedia and I tried to pan and I couldn't do it because it went out of focus and it wasn't as smooth as I wanted. And he just kept looking at me and he said, why don't you just move the book? So instead of panning the camera, just slide the book along. It's like, oh, wow. <laughs> and I realized at that point it clicked. It's not what it is. It's what it looks like. So in the same way that you can pan the book, you can also, I don't know, if you need some shade, you can put a cardboard box that you found at the edge of the frame. It doesn't matter. It's not what it is. It's what it looks like. And if that cardboard box looks like the side of a building that you happen to be shooting around the corner, just because you tricked the focus and, you know, you use the shaded part of the box so you can't tell that it's cardboard and so on and so forth, then it's valid. It's not what it is. It's what it looks like. And it sort of frees, frees you up to think of what you want to see and work backwards. You know, that's the whole French reverse thing. It's, it doesn't matter that we're not on the other side of the world looking the other way. Just cheat it. It doesn't matter. Just move the light around to the other side. You can shoot in the same direction. Make sure you get a different background so it doesn't look the same as the shot you just cut from. Switch your key around to the other side and the audience will believe it because it's not what it, what it is on the day. It's what it looks like to the audience. You're telling a story, right? So as long as you get your Lego pieces, you can build whatever you want. You know, I love that. That's the magic for me. It speaks to the style of work that you do. Even, can we talk about this, the, sure. the helmet stuff that you were working on? Or is that yeah, similar? sure. No, that's fine. So uh, shooting a web series that's mostly POV. At first we were doing it with me holding the camera beside the person whose arms are supposed to be in shot. So he, he can't even hold the camera himself. And uh, then we did a body mount. And then we finally decided that the best thing is a helmet cam with uh, an external recorder. So I can record remotely whilst the, uh, the creator of the show wears uh, the camera on a helmet. Yeah, so. which helmet cam stuff isn't, it's, that's kind of standard now. It's not, that's nothing out of the ordinary. But what you did to add to it, oh, I made see. it different. We needed to make him fly. We needed to make the guy fly. Um, how do you make someone fly? You know, there's, again, there's all kinds of ways to do stuff. Uh, one would just be to have him stand on top of a green screen. And then we thought the, it just wouldn't have the, the right vibe. And I'm a big fan of doing stuff in camera. I don't know if you agree, but in camera always looks better. You have to spend more time doing it. But so we really wanted to make him hover, make him fly. And then the next idea is to just hold a big pipe or two by four or whatever, two people. And then he hangs from the pipe and you just kind of walk him a bit. Still wasn't very good because then you couldn't see his hands. Yeah. So you can only see his feet floating, but yeah. can, as a viewer, you'd be like, oh, what's he hanging on to? Exactly. You can tell the cheat's happening. Yeah. 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 So then we thought, well, what we can film his hands against green and sort of put those in after. But again, that wasn't good enough. So we created this, uh, essentially it's like a swing. 
that you could pretty much put in, in any location. You weren't restricted to like using a cable that has to hook up to a truss or like set this up anywhere you wanted, really. Yeah, we made it out of C stands because we were just using available material. They were turtles, so we took this, so, so it was just the two posts. Arms, fully extended, so we get the separation. Uh, so they were locked together and extended. And so then it made basically a goalpost. And then from the corners of the goalpost, we attached a rope and you know, taped a sound blanket onto the rope so that the person can stick the rope under his armpits, basically. If you hang on to something, you kind of naturally lean back. So the idea was uh, that the rope went across his chest and under his arms and up behind him so that he could theoretically hang with his arms and not swing too far or anything. And then uh, myself and the assistant walked along with this, with this host. And uh, at a certain point when it was time to fly, we stuck the posts in the ground and sort of lifted him a little bit. And then it dropped. Basically, the goalpost was tall enough to make him swing about a foot up off the ground, you know, with an arc that carried him about four feet. Just subtle. It took a little while because we kept seeing the bottom of the stands because we wanted the lens to be wide enough to see a lot of his body. And so that means it was angling out. And, but we did it. It worked out really well. And it's so satisfying. So yeah. satisfying to do something that is just ridiculous and you shouldn't be able to do, but to find a way to MacGyver it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Why do you think that it is that you have that approach? You might have had role models growing up or even your parents. Like, What did your parents do? My father is a contractor. My mom is a teacher. But she was very involved in uh, improvised drama. So this sort of impro improvisational spirit, I think, uh, comes from my mom. And then the technical, the ability to translate the idea into practical step-by-step -step process came from my dad, who's a contractor. He's a, he's a renovations contractor, which means that he's got to start with situations that are always different. The problem uh, is often simpler than you might think. You don't always have to start from the beginning. All those lessons to kind of break it apart and just rebuild the part that you need. Works well for film too, because you don't need things to last too long. <laughs> they just have to work, you know, for a few hours. I think that our industry is magic. I think that we get to play make-believe for a living. We're extremely lucky. So I try to do magical things. Maybe that's where the approach comes from. I love being challenged by a director. Sometimes it's really abstract, you know? You know, I, I see this color and a person sort of drowning, but not drowning and their hair sort of flying, but it's kind of surreal and okay. So you take that and drowning, but not drowning. Okay, you can shoot them underwater. But then if you green screen the back of it, you can then put them on land, even though their hair and everything is sort of underwater, they seem like they're on dry land. Well, that's kind of cool and surreal. And if you shoot it backwards, then all of a sudden, and you, you know, like, yeah, just kind of break yeah, it yeah. apart and uh, reverse engineer. It sounds like a, a strong approach that you've always kind of taken there. But I also appreciate getting into the nuances of a really good interview setup where they had a stroke and so one side of their face is, you know, it's not the most flattering for them. And so how do you, okay, well, let's, what if we key them from here and do this and kind of put this into shade and then they're one good eye and all of a sudden it's the best they've ever looked and they're very grateful and so... Yeah, I think we can be kind uh, with our work, and it's worth taking the time to be kind. When you kind of blew up with the music video stuff, you can run that for a while, then you kind of make a transition, or you can stay in the music videos, or you can kind of work somewhere else. So I got into, right after music videos, I found myself working in docudramas. They were blowing up big in Canada, 
and uh, there's a lot of work available. What jobs were those women specifically? One is uh, called Mayday Air Crash Investigation. So I was on the road doing a lot of interviews, doc sort of stuff, but then also we would call it B-roll, but they ended up being sequences that are used in the show more than B-roll. So doing doc stuff and B-roll, a lot of uh, investigative discovery ID kind of stuff. It was really fun at the time because it's been going through an evolution where the recreations were all impressionistic at first. You couldn't even see the people's faces. It was non-union, they weren't really actors, you know, we were making them do things that they're not really trained for, so we would, it would be all impressionistic. And that was a lot of fun, because you could flare things and keep them out of focus. How do you show it but not show it? I think that's what attracted me to it. And now it's sort of evolving. So, so the next step was, oh, well, you can shoot their faces but just from the side you know but no one's ever talking and then it became well no you can actually shoot their faces and we'll have them talk but we don't know what they're saying because there's no no sound ups and they're not really acting you know they're just pointing to things or whatever and then now it's at the point where you know directors are asking these essentially extras to to act uh, so it's a very strange kind of situation now and it's less impressionistic which I'm, I don't think is a good thing. Mm. I think that, you know. Yeah, and I think the people liked what was happening, what was coming out of Canada. I think we really uh, made our mark in that genre. Uh, we have a, a higher standard here. And I think it's because a lot of our guys are so good, but the work is not as abundant as in the States. And so you might get, you know, an A-list person doing your dramatic recreations versus in the U.S. where you might get somebody who's not as trained in cinematic storytelling. And then, uh, then I started doing some lifestyle kind of shooting. And it, I really thought that in a way I was taking a step backwards, you know, not using my full skill set. And that's true, but what I hadn't realized is that there's a skill set uh, required for lifestyle that is quite valuable. To be able to pull up to a location without any scout, you just have a basic package and, you know, you've got two hours to make a scene. And to have the confidence that you'll be able to do it and that it's going to look good and you're going to have all the story elements you need, that's a big deal. I wouldn't have felt that confident in the past, and now it can. So that's a really good thing. Uh, the dance, the camera dance, I learned that from doing um, docs and lifestyle. Um, what do you mean by camera dance? Let's assume that they'll never, be, they'll never cut this. Let's assume that you have to that it has to look good for a full two minutes. So you have to dance from one place to the next. You can't cut and reposition and roll again. Uh, you have to make the transition usable. You might have another camera there. You've got sort of peripheral vision. I guess if they're on your left, it's easier because <laughs> your left eye. You know, I know, for instance, now if I'm covering a scene of two people and they're not trained actors, they're not hitting marks or anything, that when they flip around, I automatically take the other person now. And if the axis has, has sort of switched, I either jump around to the other side or, you know, I catch the other cameraman's eye and we just kind of decide, okay, we're jumping axis now. But we need to have that one shot that flips us over. And so at the end, when we're done the scene, let's just recreate you guys moving from this point to that point. 
And so I know that the editor will be able to flip axis at that particular point. And I've also given him or her the elements to be able to do that comfortably. The language that you have with your other camera operators, do you have your own special way of communicating? Do you use headsets? You're shooting wide, he's shooting tight. How do you guys communicate? Or do you, have you just got there from just working for so long together? At this point, it's a shorthand. But when, you know, if you're working with a new team, then the director might just call things out whisper in your ear or whatever. Were you ever an editor yourself or how did you come up with that understanding of I, I don't need this shot because I just know it's going to be not used because everyone needs to learn that somewhere. I did go to film school so I learned a little bit of basic cinema language principles of the, the line of axis and, and that kind of stuff. I also made it a point to sit in with the editors when I was starting out as often as possible to see what is making them tear their hair out and so I always make sure for instance, when I'm shooting music videos, I don't forget the glue, you know, that'll hold it all together. We'll do a couple of full takes just on the singer and then an extra one <laughs> because I know that the editor can always cut back to that. And then we'll do specials. Uh, so we'll do a couple of takes of just random snare, bass, drum, anything that's repeated that gives the editor the ability to, to put it in anywhere. So carrying that over to say reality make sure that I get some reactions without lip flap, without any kind of uh, indication of where it is in the story. So make the uh, background a bit more abstract, keep it out of focus or whatever, or if there are two distinct places they were at, I make sure that I get it in each place. And I know the editor can always cut to the reaction. That's a pretty standard interview thing, but then you'll also have like, they talked about four different things in the room. You don't wanna swing away and miss the next thing they're talking about, so you, you clean it up later. Make sure you get a shot of each of those things they talked about. Make sure you get, say, a wide that's kind of obscure and artistic and interesting looking that establishes the space, but doesn't commit us to any particular part in the conversation. So no lip flap for that. You can even put them out of focus. It doesn't matter. Something in a reflection, some cutaway, whatever it takes, allow the editor to give the editor the tools to, uh, to do their job, you know, to do their job well, to pace it. Yeah. To keep getting work and moving forward, do you have a, a way that you've built your reel? Is it more through the contacts you've built? What's getting you the work that you have? You know, it's really strange. I had uh, an agent a while back, so we parted ways. And right now I'm just by word of mouth. I happen to be busy enough, but it's a bit of a mystery about how to get more work. I, I don't know. It seems to just come. It would be nice to uh, make a specific aim to do something. But I'm so preoccupied now with my other projects that I want to do. Promoting myself is probably my weak point, to be honest. Yeah, but it seems yeah. like you're getting the work, so it's not necessarily going to... Yeah, yeah. It's, you know. And then I've got my own stuff that I'm passionate about sharing, installation art. And I really want to talk about consciousness. I thought myself as a technician, camera assistant first, then union camera assistant, and then union bark. And all of a sudden I found myself directing... It seems that that's the direction things are going, where I have things to create. I guess my focus is a little bit split from just shooting and promoting myself as a shooter and growing my um, technical knowledge, keeping up with all the latest things, all the things that I should actually be doing. I'm splitting that with the stories that I want to tell. I'm just following what makes me feel passionate. Yeah, it sounds like you're still still able to create as an artist yeah. for your own passion things. Yeah. When I guess you can't do those special interesting projects or, or ideas that you want to do for the lifestyle stuff, maybe they, they don't allow for it, but you're still able to... I guess if I was shooting more things that were more 
creatively satisfying, then I might feel less compelled to do the creative stuff on the side. But right now, what I'm shooting is it's good. I'm grateful for it all. I get to play for a living. I'm just choosing projects really uh, with people that I like. I'm at the point where it's I recognize that you can still do great work without being too precious about everything. Something I've learned is that by the time the stuff gets to me, it's been thought about for a long time. You know, you'll have uh, a team writing this ad campaign and it's all they've been thinking about for six months. Just be kind about their ideas and recognize that it's really important to them. This entire experience is important to people because they might only get to do two or three of these a year. And in their lifetime, they might not get to do it for that many years. So the experience has to be, it should be fun. It should be memorable. It's not always just about having a, a shot that's 100% awesome. If it could be 90% awesome and people have a much better time on set, I think that's, that's okay to make that decision, you know? Let's not waste all this time. Let's give the director extra time to work with the actors because obviously somebody in that group is a little inexperienced and they would much more benefit from that time than, than the shot that's like so awesome that everybody's putting it on their reel. It's like, well, not every shot has to be that good if it's a trade-off. Meaning you can have the best shot, but the acting is weak. Nah. Do you want people to say that was a beautiful, terrible movie? You know? Yeah. No, it's, you know, so I guess it's important not to outshine anyone on the team. So it feels like one cohesive, strong pretty good film as yeah. opposed to a film that's like so good in this area but really weak in this area have you found it to be a challenge at all when you have a project put in your lap it has been vetted for a long time people have been putting themselves into it for six months three months whatever it might be before you get on board you get brought in the last minute and you see something in that project and you're like i could make it so much more interesting if i just we just did this or just changed this. How do you navigate bringing up those ideas to a director or to the, the production company without stepping on toes and seeming like you're trying to change the whole film? That's tough, especially if you've directed before. There could be a problem with people feeling like you're trying to take over as director or something. Just like any ideas, any collaboration, be respectful, first of all. Be gentle with the delivery. Sometimes do it in private if you have to. I, I like to say, how about we do a version like this? If you've been thinking about something for a long time, even if something else sounds like a much better idea, you're going to want to see your version just to know why it's not working, even if it's... You want to kind of see it and see how... Because you can learn about your own process for next time you're writing stuff about why something like this doesn't work or whatever. So it's definitely worth going through the exercise of trying that version out. I'll give you an example. I was shooting one thing, it was B-roll, and we were in Brazil. We were filming some special ops at their training camp, and they had a tower, a concrete tower that they were going to rappel down. And the director had this great idea of rappelling down towards us. He had this idea that they, they're small and they get bigger as they come down. So right from the beginning, I recognize that all we're going to see really is a bunch of butts coming towards us. <laughs> it's going to be slow. You're not going to have that dynamic feel of, of the motion, which that's what I thought he was going for. But it's a nice cutaway. You see the rope swinging in the foreground. They're small, you know, and then you cut away when they're right almost on top of you. So sure, it's all good. But I knew that the shot that he really wanted, we were in the jungle. So we want to see the trees. We want to get that sense of where we're at. 
the sun was setting. I knew that we wouldn't have a lot of time and that because the sun was setting and it's all about the motion, really what I thought is you need a profile of the tower to see them coming down the side, beautiful sky behind, and you see the silhouettes as they go down. You see them repelling. You don't, that's really how it should be viewed from the side rather than from underneath. And we went out and the first thing I did is get ready because the sun was setting, get ready for my shot. And he was like, what are you doing? I said, from below. It's like, okay. So it goes, and we shot it. And sure enough, ah, I'm just not getting it. It's not really always, uh, yeah. and it was like, mm, okay. And then I said, here, I have an idea. Let me just show you something. And I did the profile shot. It, it was okay that the sun was setting because we were really exposing for the sky. They were silhouettes, so it was okay. And I set it up and he said, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted. Why don't you say something? <laughs> I was like, I did. I did say. <laughs> it's like, so I, I guess that is to say that sometimes you could be suggesting ideas. They're just not hearing you because they're so caught up in what they've been thinking about for a couple of months. You have to give them that experience of trying it and it doesn't work. I suppose if there were clients standing around, I might have spoken to him and explained that we're definitely going to be doing this one, this profile, in my opinion, because of this and this and that. I might have handled it differently if there were clients and I wanted the director to save face. Right. Yeah. But otherwise, it's an exploration. That's an important part. It's an exploration. And that's something that I like to have time to do on set. There's so many ways to achieve what you're trying to do. So it's okay to start with one that doesn't actually work, but it guides you to the next thing. Yeah. The next thing. Yeah. That's how the MacGyvering happens. It's all problem solving. The first problem is that there's no image on the sensor. The second problem is, okay, now there's some light and there's an image on the sensor that looks really bad. You keep tweaking it and tweaking it and eventually it's fulfills everything on the checklist that you need. Yeah. Is, have you had some situations that you've come across where something didn't quite go right or didn't quite go the way you were thinking it was going to, but you had to save it somehow? Well, the first go-to is blaming the sound guy. No, but seriously, um, it's important not to panic because there may be 20 sets of eyes on you. And even if you panic internally, people you can sort of tell and they take their cue from you about how to feel about the day. I've had somewhere where the universe has just, just handed me exactly what I needed, which is pretty cool. Like, who's, where's the sound guy? I thought you were doing sound. Oh. Oh, right. When we first started this conversation six months ago when you were going to hire me, you had said that you would like me to do sound as well. And then the shoot got canceled three times. And we didn't talk about sound since then. And then somebody else booked me from your company. And you had assumed that I'm still doing sound. And I don't have the microphones. Where's the sound guy kind of thing? Uh, fortunately, we're right around the corner from Henry's. I just went and rented something last minute and it worked out. Dead batteries as well. I went and bought, I'll buy your used showroom battery as long as it's charged. Uh, there's always ways to MacGyver things. For instance, oh, we got a, our head was a ball head, but we've got Mitchell sticks. It's like, oh, okay, what are we gonna do? Okay, how about if we use a tape roll, that's kind of like a big washer. So let's place that on top and pinch it between that. And okay, well, that kind of works, you know, let's take a picture and send it into shitty rigs. So there's always stuff like that that you can MacGyver. That's why I love having a bunch of grip stuff. You know, sometimes it's awkward, but it works. Gaffer tape has saved us before. There's no plate. Where's the Sackler plate? 
where's the plate for the tripod, you know? Using the little thread that is there to hold the extra lock-offs, like the, sometimes there's a little thread and then you kind of go into that with, with a bolt and then to that you clamp something else and then you use your monopod on top of the tripod to hold the whatever. <laughs> I mean, you have to make it work. Usually with lighting is where you can get stuck. Tricking the sensor. So, okay, we were in uh, one location and we wanted to have a blue background. It was supposed to be surreal, but we didn't have control because we thought we could block all the light. But we couldn't block all the light. The curtains were not light tight, like they had said. And I didn't have enough blacks for the windows. And what are we going to do? So I ended up double oranging the key so that it was like 2,400 degrees or even. <laughs> Hey guys. Hello. Studio three where we get a hot sort of. We're just tying up a few things. Awesome. Hi guys. Hey. Hey, what's up? That's awkward. <laughs> Is there a reason you're not wearing clothes? Mm -hmm. What? <laughs> yeah. The privilege of radio. <laughs> so trick the camera by doubling orange on the light, and it was already tungsten with daylight flooding in. By tricking the camera, you white balance to the deep orange that turns that to skin tone by default any daylight that's hitting anywhere becomes a deep saturated blue by not having control over the windows i was able to still give us a nice background by tricking the sensor solutions like that i really like there were some others it, the thing is that that's what we're always doing i find that there's actually never the exact gear that i would like to use it's always some weird like, oh, where are the cop lights? Well, we don't have the cop lights. Okay, what about a couple of one-by-one -one mirrors and a red light, or like a red gel and a blue gel so that we can, you know, shine them and spin the mirrors around and do that? Well, we don't actually have a mirror. Or we have the mirror, but we don't have gels. It's like, well, okay. So then we open up uh, YouTube and you can get a cop light display and it's just a right, left, blue, red. You bring that up and then find a door frame or something that is reflective and you get to that perfect angle and you just have the shiny paint give you the blinks that you need. And that tells us we have a cop car. That with a little, you know that the cops have showed up. I think we've used bicycle flashers. You know, some are blue and some are red. So we'd use those. Whatever, whatever you need, right? I mean, the original idea was to actually have those lights bathe the scene. But we couldn't do that, so instead we found something that's super reflective and used a computer screen that's bright enough for that. And just make sure you frame it out of focus in the foreground so it's a big part of the scene. Blinks on and off. You just It's all about just cues, visual cues. The audience doesn't care that it's actually bathing people or it's actually spinning around the way it would. It's just a visual cue. We were supposed to do a macro shot. Didn't have a macro lens just so happened that the parents owned a magnifying glass just shot through the magnifying glass it's not that good optically the edges are a bit soft so you shoot it in 4k you punch in to 1080 you know you solve every little thing right and so we only got the center of the of the magnifying glass and that was cleaner and gave us what we needed so stuff like that what kind of packages are you finding that you've been navigating towards? These days, a lot of the work that I'm doing is uh, less for the big screen. And so on commercial stuff, we might use a Red or an Alexa. That seems to be the, the sort of main thing. 
Uh, but I find I'm using more C300s, Mark IIs, shooting a lot on an F5, on a 55. I prefer the Canon menu structure, and I prefer uh, the images coming out of the C300 Mark II over the Sonys, but uh, I can't always decide. Uh, I haven't taken the, the plunge into a, a real body, you know, a motion picture body. I have some DSLRs that I use for things and, and lenses, but I haven't uh, made the leap uh, into a camera body because it just keeps changing every time I about to pull the trigger something else comes out and it's tough when you invest in a camera because you want to pay it off but not every production wants your camera and uh, you, you can't be making decisions for the wrong reasons to have the ability to switch to whatever body is quested I kind of keep it clean yeah I don't uh, even when you're changing camera packages do you find that you rely heavily upon your camera assistant to be your technician to understand the camera or do you invest a lot of time yourself in the technology and understanding and testing the camera and finding out all of its weak points and or do you trust somebody else who's more of a technician to come on board when I'm doing a commercial or a feature I rely heavily on the assistant when I'm doing any doc stuff I want to know the camera because it becomes an extension of me an instrument that I need to play. And the better I know my instrument, the more fluid the day can be, the more options I can offer, the more I can dance with the camera. If it's mainly on sticks and with you know client monitors and so on, I'll just let the assistants do all that stuff. I don't use a meter very much. I own one, but I haven't brought it out in a long time. I just go by eye and uh, keep levels relatively appropriate and only when we're at the bottom end of our exposure then I'll make sure to meter so that we're not uh, underexposing or something. Cameras are so sensitive now that that rarely happens. Oh and I'll use a meter if I'm trying to maintain a scene throughout a day or throughout a week and keep coming back to it then it's not enough just to expose it properly you want to expose it relatively. Consistently. Consistently. Even with music videos it's not about consistency right? So it's very freeing to do music videos because you're just constantly inventing. I didn't appreciate it at the time because that was where I came from. Didn't appreciate the freedom that we had. Essentially, somebody's giving you money to make an experimental film. What better way to learn, right? So now I'm, I'm grateful for any videos that I do. And I pick the ones that inspire me, the songs that inspire me or the artists that do. Because um, one definition of hell is... Uh, listening to a song you don't like hundreds of times so it's with you for the rest of your life yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> recently you were accepted into the CSC yes I did was that a long time coming it was a long time desired I'm uh, I'm grateful and honored to uh, to have my CSC letters to be counted among the peers my fellow CSC members I've always felt a little bit on the outside doing what I do because my ideas seem to come more from life experience rather than what is happening currently, what's fashionable and so on. It almost feels like a, it's an affirmation that what I'm doing still counts as real stuff, even though I'm making stuff up all the time. I feel like I've learned the normal way of doing things, the industry standard way of doing things. And I've felt conflicted by whether reinventing the wheel all the time is a smart way to go about things. It's a bit of a validation that that's a viable way to approach it as well. You know, it's okay to be experimental and it's okay not to know the difference between, you know, uh, this log and that log down to 
how they process the information or whatever. Uh, I'll just look at the two results, see which one I like better for the images that I'm trying to achieve. For instance, I shot a feature where the ease of working with the camera that doesn't have an external recorder overruled, even though it was going to compress the image into 8-bit. It was really concerning to me. They didn't have the money for a better camera. They didn't have the money for an external recorder. It would have been too unwieldy. I didn't have an assistant. So instead, I just invested in some uh, cheap grads. They didn't even have a map box. It was just all threaded stuff with a little Koken plastic holder. But that was the best way to invest my energy to be able to control the big skies. It was all about big sky. It allowed us to get the film that we wouldn't have been able to get if I had insisted on getting the best gear. And it's nice to know that that's okay. It's okay to make those decisions, uh, even though they're not technically the best, because practicality is an important part of the whole experience, of the whole process. To have the CSC members accept that, that means a lot to me. To have the other members accept me into their fold, it's the greatest thing. I mean, I think that that's what we all want, is to be accepted by our peers. It's great when you're grandmother tells you how good the stuff you shoot looks you know but she doesn't know as well meaning as she is your your accomplishments is validated by the people that you have all the respect for because they're the ones that are taking a look at your work like you say it's not just your grandmother that says hey that's great yeah, cool <laughs> yeah yeah I, I was honored and humbled conversely when I applied and didn't get in the first time it affected me more than I thought it would I, I hadn't realized how important it was for me to be recognized by my peers until I got refused the first time I applied. And then I realized how important it was for me. So then I really invested the time to really gather everything, explain the technical hardships that I had. Hadn't realized how important that was to, the, to, to my peers to see what I would do if I'm stuck in a situation. So that was a big part of my application is to explain, you know, for this video, we needed such and such and we didn't have it. So instead, I did this. That's an important skill set to have because that's what we're doing all the time. We're just making do. And it's really good to accept that because it just it's just another challenge. It's just another thing to make do. There's so many reasons to get into a bad mood because you don't have what you need to do this or something, you know, or to, to be somehow brought down. But once you accept the fact that it's it's all like that, yeah. There's never yeah. everything Every, you need and yeah. there's never enough money and there's always going to be somebody with some opinion or, or something that you don't want to hear right now on set or you have to because they're the client but you know you can't actually implement it because it's going to ruin what you're working on. There's always stuff like that. And to be derailed by that is the worst thing because for me I need to be grounded and in order to be present and grounded I can't be frustrated or angry or those things are antithetical. And so the worst thing, even if you have, say, uh, a PA that keeps talking about how good this shot is and how good, you know, because these days on set, it's not like it was. There's not that respect and that division. There's some people that just don't know set etiquette. But that was a big thing for me, transitioning from dramatic stuff, uh, scripted drama to lifestyle and, and those kind of shows people were less trained they were less professional that used to to affect me on set i don't let it anymore because i can't do my best work when i'm thinking about such and such annoying element or whatever so instead i just 
hunker down, focus on my own thing, and might whisper to the AD, hey, can you send this person out on a run? There's a real bubble, a creative bubble that needs respect. It's like being in a recording studio with a band. It's where people are burying their souls uh, in that creative bubble. They're trusting one another. You need to handle people delicately when they're in that vulnerable, creative space. You're a family man now. Mm-hmm. How do you manage being away for so long and coming back and, and still maintaining you, what you've always done as a, as a single person and being a cinematographer to be able to feel like you're accomplishing what you need to for you, but also managing having a family that you have? Being away is not easy. A lot of guys have difficulty trying to like manage both of those two sides of their life. Fortunately, I have a partner who's amazing. She's a, a great mother and she does pick up the slack for me as best she can. I try not to fill up my time all the time. So I have days and weeks off where I can spend focused time, concentrated time with my son. I always bring him back something when I go away. I remember what it was like when I was a kid. You don't want to spoil your child or make him just want the gift when you come back from a trip. But the reality is when you bring something home, it means that you were thinking about them while you were on the road. To them, it means that they have something tangible to hang on to when you're away again. So I always bring something. I, I use media to communicate with home. I text and, and all that as often as I can. And then I miss my son during those other times, you know. Try not to take gigs away if there's an equivalent gig in town kind of thing. Let's say money is important at that time. If there's something that pays kind of the same and it's at home, I'll, I'll choose that instead. Right now my son is 16, so it's less critical. I used to bring him out to set when he was younger so that he could see what daddy does. And that's how I deal with it. I'm camera operating on a show called Hello Goodbye at the airport where people tell their stories. It's, it's an amazing show because it makes you grow your empathy. There aren't many shows like that where you just watch two people talking and it brings you to tears. Granted, it's made exactly that way to pull at the heartstrings and stuff. One of the things that came out recently in the show is we're talking about a sense of accomplishment. If you're lucky enough to, to partner up with someone whose sense of self-worth is measured by how well she can create a home, then that's perfect. It's her strengths and desires complementing your strengths and desires. I haven't felt like uh, work and home life are at odds. I'm grateful to her for that. Also to my son for understanding that about me. I think being a single parent and being a DOP is probably really tough. I don't know how you could do it because even when you're not away, you're working 12 hours as a standard. It's not like that everywhere else. I don't know why we're okay with 12 hours as a 12 hour, 12 plus one as a standard. It doesn't really make sense. Because, you, you know, if you have to come home and have a choice between sleep or a shower, that's not, not enough time at home. We just need to shave an hour. Just an hour would make a huge difference. Well, it's doable when, when we're in control, you know, when you're running the set and you just have to have a certain amount of shots and you can work towards that. But when you're with a company that has rented a studio and gear and they want to maximize their, you know, their rental expenses. They do it differently in Montreal. If you're going to do a night shoot in a studio, just because switching over to nights and whatever, and production's trying to save a day and all that, if they're going to put you into night shoots in a studio, they're paying time and a half to start. Even if it's a weekday, but if it's a night in a studio, that means it doesn't have to be because it's in a studio. So if you're right. going to switch yeah. around yeah, everybody's yeah. hours, it's going to cost you. And 
stick it to the man kind of cost. It's a, uh, you guys only understand money. So in your calculations, you should know that if you're going to make us miss out on a regular life, <laughs> if you're going to make me not see my kids, it's going to cost you more. And maybe you'll be more inclined to letting me see my kids during the day, you know? And, and they, the union tried to do it with nine, three, two, triple, right? That's the standard yeah. union. But what's three hours of time and a half production? Just calculate that into it. It's not enough mm -hmm. of a deterrent. Just kind of makes you feel a little bit better about going home with some more money because you've missed out on life things. Yeah, yeah. We're speaking yeah. with Mika Dahan, CSC. Thanks for making the time. Thanks. <laughs>